No, I think we're okay. Hey, everybody. How are y'all? You know, what white people culture doesn't have a fantasy franchise yet? That's what I want to know. Is, is there is there like a... Can we get like a Polish sort of culture? It's just got to be something. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I We've want... We've got to have like a Lithuanian... Yeah, like some sort of Slovakian-like fantasy film, right? That Does that exist yet? Uh, surely it does. I mean, I, I, but something that's international, you know, that's got the sort of release. I'm sure within their own film, um, National Cinemas, they have something like sure, that. Sure, of yeah. course. But something that's really gonna get some legs is what I want. I I, I need something to know about the, you know the uh, amazing swords of of Czechoslovakia, mm. um, the Czech Republic, or whatever was before that. The great Kalachi. I, yeah, the Kalachi, a sword made oh, out of Kalachis. You know I fuck with the Kalachi. <laughs> That's what I need. Hey, hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We gather around a table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is no exception to that rule. It is uh, Highlander, starring, starring Christopher Lambert and Sean Connery. This is in memory of and respect for the passing of Sir Sean. And so we are uh, doing this thing uh, for him um, and also kind of for me because it's also in memory of my soon passing since I just turned 40. We lost the two biggest inspirations to Celebrity Jeopardy in one week. I know. That's I know. It's Damn. Crazy Holy time. Holy crap. Huh. I hadn't even made that connection yet, Arthur. Wow. Yeah. I, it just hit one. me. Yeah, yeah, it just hit me. Wow. R.I.P. Huh. to some legends. Pour it out. I know. Yeah. Terrible times. So. It's a way to start off on the wrong foot. Anyway, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Uh, I might be Dalton, but who knows? We forgot to do Much that last like week. Pop. Oh, well. Did we? I thought we did. <laughs> I think we missed it. Oh, we might have. Who knows? Uh, uh, who cares? Look, most of the people that listen to this show know our voices at this point. I would hope they do. The one in a can is Dalton. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. The one, the one calling in from an undisclosed location in case Joe Biden's serious about ran, rounding up anarchists. That's me. I don't want anybody to know where I'm recording from. That's why the VPN's turned on, mofos. <laughs> so, if you're turning into the Good Trash Honorcast for the very first time, we want to warn you of something. This is not a review show. It's an analysis show. We'll have a very brief analysis at the first of the show, which will be spoiler free, and then we'll play a little game in which we expand a fictitious syllabus about this film which might be spoiler light but once we get down to business and there will be a cue to let you know all spoiler bets are off so that is your warning dear friends uh but without any further ado we begin our reviews by hearing a synopsis and i'd like to hear your best synopsis dr reverend arthur gordon he fought his first battle of the scottish highlands in 1536 he will fight his greatest battle on the streets of New York City in 1986. His name is Connor McLeod. He is immortal. Yes, he can never die. Um, that's why they call him the rooster. There can be only one. There can be only one. I guess. I guess. Of what? Of uh, Highlanders. Highs. Well, I mean, there Highs were. Highlander. Um, there were a great many sequels. Swords. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna go ahead and head this right off in the past. There is, of course, there there is. I, I, I meant past, not past. There are, of course, many many sequels to this film and a long running TV show. Uh, we can get in as much into the minutia of the Highlander lore as we want. I we know a not. little bit of it. We will not, we, uh, except for to say I Adrian Paul is a better McLeod. I really don't want to. Thank you. Okay, that's all we want to say. <laughs> Um, so, without any further ado, though, let's hear those uh, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews of your experience. Well, I assume we've all seen this movie before? No. Arthur has not. Have you no. seen it? 
Wow. No, I had to, again, despite having watched like quite a bit of the TV show growing up and a couple of the sequels on cable, I think I might have seen like 10 minutes of this one time. I've never seen the original Highlander for whatever reason, even um, though I, I've always wanted to. Uh, the only thing that helps it is nostalgia. So I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. You so guys are so wrong. Holy shit. All right. Well, this Dalton. This a masterpiece. All right. Go ahead, uh, Dalton. Okay. What? Well, listener, before. Sorry, you're Dustin cutting out. Arthur, we're I'm losing you, bud. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> We're in a tunnel. Uh, uh, okay, I see. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, buddy. No, uh, okay, you really are throwing to me for my review. All right. Well, I, I will go ahead and say, of course, the nostalgia goggles are strong on me uh, for this one, despite the fact that I've... Wait a uh, minute. Never wait a minute. Wait. You don't know what that term... I don't think that term means what you think it means, bud. The nostalgia goggles? Yeah. Yeah, okay, well, I'll go ahead and continue to give my review, and you guys can tell me <laughs> if I'm wrong on what that means. We'll circle back to that. Uh, I, I don't know if I said something secretly horny. I'm not sure, um, because this movie's very horny. It's hard to tell what is and isn't, um, and that's part of its charm. It might be one of my very, very favorite gay action movies, uh, second only uh, to Point Break and... Uh, uh, right, tra just just trailing behind it is, of course, Arthur's favorite Predator. Um, I think this movie's a masterpiece, and I did from the moment we get that amazing camera work in Madison Square Garden while a pro wrestling match is going on. Um, it's a little janky, you know. You could tell the the craft uh, needed a little bit of computer fakery, and that just wasn't there quite yet for them to get that match into Connor McLeod sitting in the stadium watching uh, the wrestling. But uh, I, I just, from the opening moments, it's like, wow, that's way better camera work than I usually expect from a, uh, a Canon production. And uh, I looked up who the DP was, and I, I don't have his name in front of me right now. Uh, but all else he's really done in, in, you know, in Hollywood was The Exorcist 3, um, and he, one of his other notable ones was the original Italian version of Man on Fire. Uh, mm. So for whatever reason, this was his, his big moment to shine, but I think camera work in this is top-notch i think editing work on this is top-notch i think yes of course uh, christopher lambert's performance is questionable but i think um oh my god the, the kurgan mr krabs um clancy brown clancy, clancy brown, brown. Think, yeah we all got it at the same time there we go i think clancy brown is giving a one of the most dedicated, fully realized villain performances of the 1980s in this movie. I think it is an absolute masterclass in Hollywood acting. Um, I fucking love it. Uh, and Clancy Brown is, you know, more notable, I think, throughout his career. I mean, not to say he hasn't played his fair share of heavies and villains, but I think he more often than not plays characters with heart of gold. Of course, I mentioned Mr. Krabs, but I always think of Drill Instructor Zim from Starship Trooper. So even though he's a fa even though he's a fascist, is you know. A pretty stand-up dude. He's a blue-collar, you know, uh, infantryman. You know, he means well. Um, I, I, I love Clancy Brown as an actor, and I'd never seen this volume on him. Um, I, I just think it's absolutely astonishing. Uh, I, of course, love all of the masculine subtext all over this film, both platonic and explicitly sexual. Um, it, it's an incredible motion picture i really think so i think it's one of canon pictures best films and we we've talked about the history of canon on this podcast a lot so we don't need to get into that too too much today uh i just want to say that you know they've got some hits and misses in their catalog but i think 
I, I see why this spawned an entire media franchise. I think this is an absolute hit. I mean, you got Queen laying down some sick tracks uh, uh, during the height of the cocaine 80s where every movie had to have original music by a, a pop sensation. Uh, I, I think this movie's great. It's peak uh, genre cinema, and it is just lit so freaking well it is such a gorgeous movie and it's plot wise it's structured really well now and i will go ahead and again give the caveats um despite having never seen this before uh when my my mom and my birth dad were still married this was one of their their favorite films together uh, as a couple because it you know it came out while they were dating or actually no i think it came out right around the year they got married yeah uh so this is a movie they they absolutely loved and uh, it's a movie my mom still holds in very very high high regard it's one of her favorite movies to talk about she loves the soundtrack so yeah i have a great deal of affection for this movie and uh, i got to watch it uh with uh, a bunch of friends in uh, the praise down discord server after uh, what a week and a half thereabouts maybe just a week of having no electricity thanks to our apocalyptic ice storms that closed out october um so yeah, look, I had a great time watching it, and I've been wanting to watch it forever. So maybe I'm going to be a little bit more generous in my reading than Dustin and Arthur this week. But I think this movie kicks seven kinds of ass. I'm a big, big fan. So the definition of that term is vicarious nostalgia. Uh, coming back to our earlier conversation. Ah, I'm just going to cut out everything before Dustin said that. So. Uh, but uh, well, yes. you guys, you guys are pooping on my parade. No, I think that's, your, that's that's your right to do. I, I appreciate what you're saying there, Dalton. And, you know, I was thinking we haven't done a lot of canon films. Uh, is this the this first? Is the first, I think. You know, I mean, Bloodsport. Bloodsport is a canon film. Gotcha. That's yep, right. yep, yep. I want to pitch. I forgot that one. I want to pitch a possible future uh, marathon. Canon thought. The, the, the canon canon. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. See, see what I did there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but without further ado, because we gotta get some Death Wish, we gotta get some uh, Missing in Action. Yeah. Gotta get some Seagal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could do that. Times could be had. We get that dancing movie they did. I forgot. Well, you know, I and Masters of the Universe, Steven. of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you guys know I want to get some more Steven Seagal movies done on the show. We do haven't you? really done any of. Them. Some more, yeah, as in some? Well, one. Under Just Siege. One we, two, have we done Under really? Siege? No. I, yeah. We haven't done any. Yeah, we haven't no. done any. Okay, I think if we do Steven Seagal, we got to do Under Siege, and I think we've got to do one of the like the really early, like absurdly violent ones. I know I like, made a terrible uh, mistake by recommending well, this marathon. totally did. Yep. Yeah, but He's he railed us. Um, railroading me. Go back into uh, where we're doing the thing, what we're doing, which is reviews. <laughs> Arthur, let's hear your words on Highlander. We somehow got punchier after doing the first episode, and that's <laughs> weird for me. The double, it's a double bill, and we're just crazy now. Yeah, I think we're all just pent up and anxious. Um, this movie's terrible. It's it's <gasps> trash. Terrible? Okay. Actually, it's about 50% terrible. I think it's terrible in the places it needs to be good. Um, Clancy Brown's the MVP. Clancy Brown is phenomenal in this movie. He is the best part of this movie by a mile. Um, both as a performer, you know, it's not a master class in acting by any means, but I, I think he's having a blast, uh, and he sells it well. I mean, he's got, the physicality is great, right? And I think that's key to, to making that character work. Totally. Uh, I, I love him here. I, I love, there's a really a great bit of costume. I love the costuming in this movie as well. A lot of the technical stuff I appreciate. You mentioned the camera work and the editing. I, I like that. Uh, the the production design, the set design, those those uh, wherever they're shooting the Scotland stuff. I don't know if they're on location or what, uh, but it looks gorgeous. Uh, those exteriors. Um, so all of that stuff is you know a plus for me. Um, but Clancy Brown, when he makes his appearance in the Highlands, 
uh, wearing that dragon armor. It's a great costume. Kicks ass. And by the end of the movie, he physically resembles a dragon. Yeah. The way his head looks, he's kind of got this like ridged brow, and he looks like a dragon. And it's a great full circle moment where he has completely embodied this thing that he was symbolizing earlier. I love that. And, and, and yeah, well, and start to finish, Arthur, I do want to jump in, and I'm not going to be too defensive uh, because I can tell that you do have some affection for the movie, but I think the costuming really top to bottom is, is excellent. This movie is responsible for a lot of 80s and 90s stepdad looks, if you know what I'm saying. Ah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. think there's some great, great fashion choices being made. The costume uh, design is, like, consistently great, both from, like, a aesthetic and story standpoint. Christopher Lambert in this and Roddy Piper and They Live to find an aesthetic for a generation of dads. Hell yeah. Checks out, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, by and far, miles ahead of anything else in this movie is Clancy Brown. Love it. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm glad. It's, it's you know, not surprising that he got the probably the best career out of this, other than, obviously, Connery, but I think he's the... Lambert got quite a bit of a career, though. In the early 90s. Yeah. I mean, he was in the Mortal Kombat movies. Yeah, and, but... Uh, yeah. I feel like Clancy's been able to maintain... Well, I, I don't know. Lambert's worked, but I don't feel like he's as prolific as... Clancy's become. Yeah, I have to look at that. I don't actually know. Yeah. So, and, and maybe I've just seen and more Clancy stuff with Clancy. Still gets like, yeah, Clancy gets sat, what, what seems like creatively satisfying work. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, I think there's that for sure. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I could talk about Clancy Brown in this all day. Um, look, this movie started with a fabulous Freebirds match and then it went downhill after that. Um, <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, I, I, I love that. I love, I mean, 80s wrestling was huge and to open with one of the biggest draws in New York and in the country, the Freebirds, and I'm not sure if they're taking on the Von Erichs in that match, but it's a great opening, and the way it's shot, and, and Highlander being there, and kind of those uh, PTSD moments he has uh, back to his, his early days is, is really fun. Um, I, I think the biggest flaw in this movie is, is Lambert. I, I think he's terrible. I, I think he has no charisma. I, I think he is poorly cast. Um, I, I think a lot of this movie feels like a first draft. It feels like the first draft of a script that they just rushed to produce. And I'm, I'm sure it was. Uh, and, it feels like the, and it feels like the uh, first draft of a, a casting set. You know, they're like, maybe these guys. And they're like, okay, let's go with that. Um, you know, he has a decent look, but I don't think his look is that great. He's not particularly uh, charming or charismatic. He doesn't really command the screen, especially when you put him next to uh, Sean Connery. Mm -hmm. uh, who oozes charisma and sexuality uh, and putting Lambert next to that uh, <laughs> as really a, a hindrance. Um, and well, so, and you know what? True of the Kurgan too. Like Clancy Brown is sexy as hell in this movie, even though yeah. he's like being super, he should have been the Highlander. Like, He's got the dude. You're so right. He's got the one sleeve like Mad Max bike jacket. Oh yeah. It's such great. A the costume. Yeah, I, and a lot of it's the costume. You're the so right. That Christopher Lambert drags this movie down. Yeah, I, I think it, it it just ultimately falls apart. And also, I, I think the script is... I think it's a very earnest film. I will say that. I, I do think it's very earnest. But I also think it's just very indulgent because it has this very Star Wars-y type thing. Like, okay, sci-fi sword fights, that sells. Let's rush it. And I, I, I still don't know really what's going on in this movie other than they're trying to kill each other because they're all mortal. And only the immortals can kill immortals. I really don't know what's the point of this film. Um, and, and I think if you had a story editor who could have refined the concept, because I think the concept's cool. You know, sword fighters who live for eternity and want to kill each other. I think that's fun. I don't think the film 
is able to boil it down into a cohesive narrative in, in a way that works for me. Um, and so that that's the big thing. I think that and Lambert are really the two points. This movie's two hours, and I think a communal watch, Dalton, would have probably helped because I think that would have fed a lot more energy to the movie that the movie doesn't mm. provide on its own. That's fair. Um, and the last thing is, I, I like the third act. I, I do. I think the third act, there's some really cool shots. There's that shot where Kurgan is standing in that, that factory, and then those windows blow out behind him. It's a oh, great moment. Amazing. But well, this... and then even before that, they have the, the neon sign fight. I love that yeah. the final fight has, like, multiple tiers to it. Yeah. But the other cardinal sin of this film is this is a action film about sword fighters, and all of the sword fights look horrendous. Whoa, um, disagree. No, they're okay. Here's the thing. Mm. Here's the thing. They look real because these are guys throwing around broadswords and katanas and not rapiers and cutlasses. But that doesn't okay, translate well into a kinetic, high energy sword fight that should command the screen, no okay. matter how bad or well shot it is. And I think that's kind of okay. the, the fault for me. Now, Kurgan now, can be kind of plodding good. with his broadsword. I think that works. But when the Highlanders just kind of plodding around and they're clanging with really bad uh, sword sound effects, it just does not mm -hmm. work. And, and so mm -hmm. the things that I think should be vital to this film working fail. But I think all the tech stuff is great. It's got a great look, great cinematography, great editing, great costuming, great production. But the, the, the key selling elements don't work for me. All right, well, Arthur. Thank you for I, that. I think Arthur has an excellent point, and uh, the only yes and for I, Arthur has tempered my praise a little bit. I gotta say because I think he's he's very correct in all his criticisms. Uh, this film needs at least one more Japanese person in the cast, and at least three more Japanese people in the fight team. Because yeah, if a katana is going to be one of the centerpiece weapons of your film, you need to make sure the fight choreography with it is very compelling. And I was so uh, confused about him having that katana at the beginning. Yeah, I was well, like, why does he have a katana? He's cool. Scottish. Huh? I, well, I do kind of like that mystery, right? Of like modern day him fights with a katana, but he's fighting with a big claymore, and I, I do think that's a fun mystery that we don't get solved until yeah. you know, he has that heart to heart with Connery. Um, but you're absolutely right that uh, at all the things I think you don't like about this film, if you're ever wanting some kind of deliciously uh, schlocky '90s stuff, you should check out the TV show if it's streaming somewhere because it, it like fills out the mythology and character stuff in a yeah. way that yeah, it like it it, re, it rewrites the sins of the entire movie franchise. Well, that's fair. I think you know I, I think it would have been great to have a prequel where we get Sean Connery in Japan getting that katana. Like you know that's oh, I would love you know, that. Like, oh my god, there is so much. I, I to your point, Dalton. I understand why this become a media franchise because it's ripe with potential across the board for the stories that could be told of the different immortals of the Highlander of McLeod uh, and his possible descendants, I guess. Is that what happens in a sequel? I saw one on prime that so had a different McLeod in it. Maybe I don't know. Part Who knows? It, he can't have kids, is, but then he yeah, can't have kids. Spoilers. It's like one of his cousins. Yeah, well, it's 40 <laughs> yeah. years old. <laughs> Not quite. Yeah, it's, it's one of his cousins was also an immortal, and eventually they had to merge the TV show and the film franchise because the TV show was so much more successful than the later sequels. <laughs> so they had to write him into the movies. That's fun. All right. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead, Dustin. What do you What do you think? You picked this film. I did. Why did you do that to me? I, well, I did it because of Sean Connery. I mean, so the, to, to be. Totally honest. I mean, that's the main reason. This is not my favorite '80s movie or '80s action movie or whatever sword flick uh, that you might engage in. And I do find uh, that it has the Star Wars problem without the Star Wars budget and slickness. Um, there's definitely been uh, some uh, 
second passes on dialogue. Uh, there's definitely been some second passes on dialogue coaching and delivery of certain lines. Although every once in a while in Star Wars, you get a bad line like, well, I want to deliver some power converters at Toshi Station or whatever that come off really petulant and obnoxious. But those choices directorially to go ahead and use those uh, work. This movie has a really bad dialogue script. I mean, that's really the first thing that's a problem is that everybody's got mm. trash lines. And True. and they're and they're bad. They're very very bad line. You combine that with Christopher Lambert, who is you know working in another language. We have to sort of give him that to start with here, um, as he is a Belgian actor. But uh, that being said, uh, Lambert is he's trying for something and he's not getting it. Um, I'm yeah, <laughs> he's, he's trying for a Le Samurai and it's just not a, a look for him. Yeah. It's just, he's not just, yeah, just really not quite there yet uh, with that. Now, Clancy Brown's great. Uh, Sean Connery, I think is great. I think he's a lot of fun uh, there. Uh, the rest of the supporting cast, I think they work and they're, um, they're competent in all their positions and doing what they need to do uh, with the film. So I think all that's fine. I think the soundtrack's good. I think technical stuff, I like you guys said, totally works. But really, it's it, the, the the big Star Wars issue with this movie is that you have a world that's really, really fascinating, but just simply unable to deliver in terms of the lead and unable to deserve in, uh, to deliver in terms of uh, the actual dialogue of the script. And the mythology is a little wonky, a little messy. But I, I mean, I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm fine with it being mysterious and not having it, you know, totally explained and totally understood. I think that's fine. Except for when you combine it with the rest of the flaws of the film, then it becomes very very, very dissatisfying. Lastly, to Arthur's point, I was also thinking about the sword fighting itself, is that you really do have an opportunity to see various kinds of styles, and Canon knows about this. They've done Bloodsport, or they're, I guess they're going to do Bloodsport, but they understand, or they could have put together uh, you know, the the African character to fight in something more of an Af African traditional style to find something that's, you know, really kind of definitively Russian or at least uh, steppe Siberian for uh, the work of Clancy Brown's fighting style to do something a bit more with the Scottishness of, of uh, Connor McLeod or the Spanish Egyptianology of, or Egyptianness, Egyptianology, that's something altogether, Egyptology. There you go. Uh, of uh, Sean Connery's character. So, I mean, there were opportunities there but they were kind of missed yeah and uh that's too bad uh but that being said it is um definitely uh fertile thought uh ground and that's why i think it's so appealing the real appeal is that it's just a really really cool idea and to have sort of okay how do i have a sword fighting action movie in the 80s and it makes sense oh they're immortals and they have to cut each other's heads off well then guns aren't you know going to be helpful for it and so that's why yeah. they continue to maintain that skill i'm actually kind of into it and I'm still into it as an idea. So I find it to be a great idea. The role-playing game op opportunities alone um, are entertaining <laughs> here, you know, for something like this. Right? Creature Highlander? You're totally. Making totally, a note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real, dude. Uh, so that's what I think is really appealing about it is that it does spawn a franchise because just the concept itself is a great idea. It's just, again, we're dealing with the canon production. And so there's just not a lot of money. There's not a lot of time. And, uh, the, the opportunity of this in the hands of, you know, 20th Century Fox or Paramount or Universal or whomever in the eighties, uh, would have been, disagree. Uh, it would have been successful. worse. Eh, maybe disagree. It it, been it, so the much bar worse. is too low for it to be worse. Oh no! Well, oh, you guys are gonna Jupiter's ascending me all over again. You cannot. You accept have poor taste in movies, cool. I guess. Well, you know that's why we you keep you monsters, on. Monsters, how 
dare you? <laughs> All right, well, let's move on and let's do our little thought exercise where we uh, expand the syllabus in which we pretend that uh, we're teaching a class. And uh, Dalton and I are going to be the only players this week. And uh, we're going to select uh, a, a slate of other films and or readings that we're going to use to append, augment a viewing of Highlander. We're going to describe what class it is or module and what points we're trying to hit. I'll be auditing these courses for uh, uh, instructional review. Oh, there. Thank you very much for that. Um, member you, of the uh, faculty. Thank you, there, Reverend Doctor. The, uh, the administrative staff there uh, is what Arthur's serving as today. So, Dalton, you get yeah, to go we, first and last, or well, second to always, last. Second to last, of course. Uh, well, Dustin, we always love to have the dean, uh, the Reverend Dr. Arthur Gordon himself on campus. He keeps us all honest and professional, so I'm glad he's here uh, auditing today. Uh, we are going to be taking a look at pop culture and myth, why we can't stop obsessing over those pesky gods. Uh, and, well, obviously it's because they're violent and horny and hard to kill, and they remind us of our id and our own parents. Uh, and it's really just as simple as that, isn't it? But I think it's very fun to explore these sorts of stories. And as Dustin said, the rule of cool here, the fun premise alone of Highlander gets it a ton of mileage. And again, it helped it spawn a media franchise. And I, I think the ways in which it, it deals with its subject matter, and the reason I made the comment that I think this would have been a catastrophe uh, at a major studio is I think the schlocky dirtiness of this film allows it to have great subtext. Um, and, and really kind of allows the, the funnest parts of this film to happen in the margins uh, and, and to really give, let itself be a film that is uh, deep ground for exploration. Um, because I, I think, as with all stories about myth and mythology and gods and monsters, uh, it, it is full of uh, all kinds of very human stories. So I think we'll start off this class by looking at some actual mythology. We'll probably start with uh, a lot of discussion of Abrahamic faiths, uh, just because these are you know, the, the, the most uh, three successful uh, religions to ever play the game. Um, you know, if, you, if you lump all three together, uh, what, what's the head count? Um, five billion? I don't know. I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot of people. Uh, if you go ahead and lump all sex uh, and uh, subdivisions together, as it were, um, so we'll definitely talk about the Abrahamic faith, but we'll of course be exploring, um, the, you know, the Mediterranean um, myth uh, traditions. You know, the Egyptians, uh, the Romans, the Greeks, and of course the Norse. Uh, we'll, be, we'll just uh, be, and then just because those are well known, there's either a lot of writing or the oral traditions were fairly well preserved. Um, and then we'll also be looking at um, some some more uh, Eastern European, uh, Southeast Asian. We'll be we will be looking at a lot of traditional folklore. We'll be looking at a lot of traditional uh, original god stories. And again, we'll be examining which cultures do and don't have gods, and what gods look like in different cultures. Um, and then we'll move on to popular culture, and we'll be looking at. Uh, television. We'll probably look a little bit at the TV show Highlander, probably just like the first arc of the series. You know, we don't need to, I think it's ran for like six, seven seasons. This is a long-running TV show. We don't need to get that far into it. Uh, we can probably just watch, you know, the pilot and maybe a couple of others. Um, but we'll also look at uh, Room 104, a really good anthology series. 
that uh, aired over on HBO that just wrapped up its four-season run uh, from the Bloss Brothers. Uh, I think Room 104 is, is quite a bit of fun, and there is an episode that definitely feels explicitly Highlander-influenced in its final season, and it is a musical episode, which they do have a couple of musical episodes uh, in their in their repertoire, and it's a very fun one. So I, I think that'll be a great episode of television to explore. And we'll also look at a little bit of the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion, which I know I've talked a little bit about over the last year or so since I've been watching it. Uh, I still haven't finished it. Basically, every time I bring it up on the show, uh, it's to remind me I still need to finish it. I've got like five episodes left. Uh, and also, um, just because it is, it's such a useful show. It is kind of uh, much like a lot of anime. It's about so many things. You can kind of use it to talk about many other works of art. Um, I think then we'll move on to gaming, actually, for our, our popular, uh, continued popular culture discussion and look at the God of War franchise um, from Sony. Uh, and then we'll also be looking at the recent indie release, Hades, from Supergiant Games, uh, both uh, exploring Greek mythology, although if you count the new God of War reboot, um, which uh, I do, it is an incredible video game. Uh, they lump in some Norse mythology in there as well. And I think exploring uh, a little bit about those two video game, well, the one video game franchise and one individual release, uh, we can look at a lot about what gods give us, especially when we look at gods that nobody really worships anymore, because it allows us to speak about our own gods uh, who we still practice with uh, in a more honest way. I think it's hard for us to be critical of our own walks and our own faiths and our own traditions sometimes, just because we can be protective uh, of the things that are important to us. So I think when we explore faith and gods, uh, through through the lens of you know dead dead religion, uh, frankly, I mean I think that's the simplest way to put it. I, I think it can tell us a lot. And again, through gameplay, uh, you get the empowerment fantasy that comes with the idea of being a god. So you get to kind of get in that headspace, explore these things in really interesting ways. Uh, and the course of close on film, uh, we'll be looking at the Underworld franchise, uh, the Thor franchise. Uh, a little bit of we'll probably just watch the original Highlander and of course we'll be watching Netflix's The Old Guard which according to the voice chat that I watched it with we all decided Highlander is a prequel to The Old Guard that's the new headcanon uh, don't get it twisted um, so that's the class um, I hope Arthur is pleased Dustin what do you want to talk about when you talk about Highlander well, I think the first thing I want to mention is uh, I think it's apparently my new job when you get done with your syllabi is like, why no American gods from Neil Gaiman? <laughs> it, 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 well, and, and Dustin, it's because it's been sitting in my uh, Amazon shopping cart, and every time I think about buying it, I go, do I really want to give Jeff Bezos my money today to get this book? I don't think so. I, I think I'd rather get the audiobook. Oh, that's right. Audible's also owned by Jeff Bezos. Well, I guess I'll have to steal the audiobook at some point, and then I never get around to finding a torrent of the audiobook. Or the Star uh, series. You could go to a local um, half half price bookstore and find one. Oh, that's a good point. I'll probably do that. Thank you. Like Arthur. Second Chance um, Books what, in Bethany, Oklahoma. Yeah. That's well, not part well, of a chain. A couple, there's also a couple of independent used bookstores here in Oklahoma City, folks. Uh, there you don't go. be scared to look them up. I can't. Yeah, I'm still waiting on my COVID test. Um, so I can't do that just now, but I think I might go do that. Um, our, Dustin, I do want to check out the Star series because I love the cast, especially, especially, especially Orlando Jones. I've seen mm -hmm. some of his scenes, I've seen clips of some of his scenes, and they're really incredible. 
Um, but uh, I want to wait. I want to wait on this one. I want to be able to, since it's basically a two seasons and done show at this point, I want to be able to read the entire novel so I can really feel like I'm, I get the most out of the TV show. You know what I mean? Fair enough, fair enough. I think the, the TV show does cleave pretty closely, but yeah, I think that's worthwhile, and I understand that. So um, I'm moving on to my syllabus, uh, which is going to be the cinematic wrestling with the ideas of immortality. Uh, immortality as a theme, because who does want to live forever? And so Highlander sort of spins a possible world in which, you know, it would be kind of cool to continue stealing lives and moving forward, you know, and see the passage of time, even though there are some sort of bittersweet nostalgic bits. It begins to sort of found that idea. Well, but, it's kind of a proto – it kind of really predates the way in which the character of Wolverine, Logan, is explored, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, High, Highlander, I mean. Like it does try to find like what would be cool about living forever and having to bury all your loved ones. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, that's the, sort of the initial idea there. And so the one of the first things I would want to look at is actually some Neil Gaiman, uh, one of his uh, collections of his comics, uh, the Sandman series, the Brief Lives series, in which uh, we um, encounter several gods and other immortal beings, and uh, they meet some of their demise. And their lives are all brief because as Death, who is a character in the series, says, you get to live just as long as everybody else does, which is one lifetime. For some of them, it's tens of thousands of years or millions of years, and for some of them, it's quite quick. And uh, so it's an interesting sort of meditation on the idea of mortality uh, in a world in which there are uh, quasi-immortals, just long-lived humans, and real-deal kind of immortals, but that could all come to an end, which is fascinating uh, as an idea. Then I want to move on to a movie that we actually talked about on the show, Once Upon a When, and weirdly made a reference to last week. That is Death Becomes Her, uh, which is... uh, Nice. Yeah, Meryl Streep, yep. and uh, we we have one of Robert Zemeckis's finest films. Honestly, it's very very fun. But this idea of pursuing some sort of fountain of youth and living forever, and maybe it going a little wrong, maybe it going a little badly, and uh, what that sometimes all sometimes dads better. Hmm. Dads better sometimes. Oh, yes. Uh, for that was me it. trying to do uh, Herman Munster. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, you'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and finally, I think I would select, uh, just in the world of vampire lore, what would you do? What would you select? Um, I think I would probably go with Anne Rice and uh, Interview with the Vampire yeah. and the accompanying novel. Yeah. I think it's a good way to sort of get into this idea. Again, living forever, the boredom that goes along with it, the blurdom that goes along with time passing, and also uh, more of that bittersweetness and loss. I think it's dealt with in a much more meaningful and interesting way than maybe Highlander does. Uh, Highlander's a little surfacey with it, but that being said, it does sort of play up the cool factor of it as well, which I find to be pretty interesting. So that would be my philosophical meditation on immortality via cinema. Um, I'm not, I think that's a module of a class. It's got to be about something else, the human condition, I guess. I don't know, something. Uh, so there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. Your syllabus just got quite a bit longer. So without any further ado, let's move on and get down to business. It's And that business is, as always, analysis. Good times to be had by all. Dalton, you mentioned earlier how gay this movie is, and I don't think you're uh, wrong. Um, oh, no, definitely well, here, not. Here's, 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 let me, here's, here's what we'll do to get this conversation started. I have a lot of notes. They're all pretty short bullet point notes. They're just kind of observations I made as I was watching the film. Uh, I'll go ahead and get those read really quickly, and then I think we can go ahead and discuss from there. 
uh, does that sound like a good way to get out of the way how just how deeply gay this film is? I don't feel like we have an option, so go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, fellas, you always have an option whether or not you want to go on. Go Dalton on always wants to come first, and that's adventures. fine. Uh, I, 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 oh boy, I assure you that's <laughs> never true, unfortunately. Um, here we go. First of all, of course, masculinity and camp being two of the cornerstones of this film, I think, really tell you everything you need to know there. Um, I wrote this quote um, from Ramirez in uh, all caps, born different. Uh, you're born different. People will try to drive you away. Um, uh, obviously, we've referenced all of the uh, cool stepdad looks this movie inspired. Um, uh, where there's also lines like, you're afraid. You're not afraid to live forever. You're afraid to die. You're afraid to live. Take care of yourself. Um, you know, all of these things. Uh, the only thing stronger than the men in this movie are the blades. Uh, look, I, I feel like, oh, God, and all of the penetrating going on with the Kurgan and McLeod uh, and their, like, whole having to deal with their relationship and that being the kind of the crux of the film. Um, and then, of course, our, uh, our our female lead, Brenda, who, who the actress, uh, her name I, I not have written down right now, unfortunately, but she kind of has, like, a whole sword lesbian vibe going on. Um, yeah, this movie rules. It's campy as hell. Um, and maybe it is just the cocaine 80s of it all and how everything's covered in neon st uh, and steam and everything's wet and rainy. And it's, again, it's neon noir. Like, that is this movie's aesthetic. It's, you know, it's we don't get enough glass bricks in this movie. And I do wish we had that because it would have made it more 80s. But otherwise, yeah. And, and we all know that the 80s were the gayest decade, clearly. Um, you forgot you know, Queen. Uh, oh, well, Dustin, just thank Queen. you, of course. Well, and that's really one thing. Uh, I thought that went without saying because we'd referenced the soundtrack already, but you're absolutely right. We do, of course, have to talk about Queen and all lyrically, musically, just a really amazing original work that they did on this movie. Some absolute fucking bangers on the soundtrack. Uh, and again, yeah, you, Queen, say no more. Um, I think that about covers it, uh, unless we want to like really get into like subtextually speaking plot-wise, thematically, like how that uh, queerness is woven throughout the film. I think we could probably talk about that. But again, those are kind of the the overviews, unless if we have like other pressing matters everybody wants to talk about. I, I was just going to say um, that the, the metaphor, I think, would apply pretty well here. I mean, if you want to look at the metaphorical relationships uh, and whatnot, you know, so the, the initial penetration that is uncomfortable and unpleasant that gets you ostracized, and then you're finally, you know, schooled and stewarded in the world by maybe a bit flamboyant, older man, you know, a I mean, Spanish peacock, a Spanish, yeah, yeah, you overdress yeah, Spanish, Spanish peacock, that, that very hot Spanish peacock, yeah, there we With go. his eyeliner and oozing sexual, look, when they run oh down God. the beach oh my goodness it's so hot it's yeah. so cute oh, yeah it's, they it. have more intimate moments than he does with his scottish bride is definitely a homoerotic volleyball montage i mean well, yeah. I guess it's, that's the, yeah exactly it's the top gun volleyball montage you nailed it's, it, it's carl weathers and arnold schwarzenegger locking arms and mm -hmm. and jesse the well, body ventura not, not being happy to leave his friend behind yeah well, and I will say this about Jesse the Body Ventura and an early line in this film. Another way that you can tell this film is gay is, and that Predator is gay is both of those films include a character using homophobic language. And in an 80s action movie, you can tell how gay-friendly it is by how hard it punishes homophobic behavior. Yeah. And I feel like Highlander does so pretty strongly. 
um, and which is nice because uh, you know famously out uh, beloved character actor Joe Polito. Uh, is there in the interrogation room when that happens? So that's kind of a fun moment. Hmm, um, and also, Jesse yeah. the body, yeah, Jesse the body Ventura gets murdered hella bad in Predator. He has one of the like gnarliest deaths, if I yeah. remember right. Yes. Um, so I think both of those films kind of know that they're playing with gay camp, and they respect that. You know, when they have uh, somebody that's too macho uh, say some shit that they shouldn't say. Um, and I, I really respect that about this kind of – because it is easy to just say, oh, well, it was the 80s, everything's gay, and kind of write off the sort of subtext. No, some some 80s action movies I think really are working at some stuff. And Dustin, it's exactly like you said. This film examines like male friendship in such a, a, a way that like isn't afraid to explore the intimacy of that, whether it is sexual or platonic, although – I am almost certain that Connor uh, and uh, Ramirez had a sexual relationship. It seems obvious to me, anyway. Oh, uh, they pumped it. <laughs> I knew it. They, I knew oh, it. Oh, I knew it. it. <laughs> he made a face and looked at me. I knew he was going there. I looked him dead in the <laughs> eyes. <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. Oh, God bless you. What they a great birthday me. present that was. Thank you, Arthur. <laughs> yes, they pumping. But yeah, it, it is the Sam scene. It is, Dustin, I'm so glad that's what you brought up. Because yeah, it is it is sweet and intimate. And again, the Kurgan represents this, you know, this bad daddy, right? This figure who... A leather a daddy, trauma. if you will. A bad leather daddy, yes. Who created a lot of trauma in Connor's life, and Connor has yet to resolve. Yeah, man, there's so much fucking stuff going on in this movie, dude. It is. Dalton completely dropped any pretenses of NPR. Yeah, he, this, he yeah, hasn't he, even tried this week. Not even trying this week, yeah. But that's well, okay. Hey, We're look, okay with it. Even on NPR, they have those episodes of This American Life where they say, uh, we've unbleeped some swear words on this version <laughs> of the show. You can go to the website if you want the censored version. <laughs> um, I want to move on to another thing, though, and I think this is an important place to do this um, because one of the things that we sometimes do is we privilege certain readings of a film. You know, we, We've talked about Point Break as you know this sort of very, very gay film as yeah. well as an action movie. Top Gun. A top Gun. Gun. And uh, those readings are absolutely valid and totally there. But there are other possibilities as well. And I think this is a particular film that you can see other things because there is very much a uh, nerd fantasy. Uh, some of the times, some of the ways in which I give readings of the uh, the the schlubby SNL comedian uh, romantic comedy film uh, yeah. where it plays that same kind of fantasy. So here we have this character who's out of time, out of step, not quite, you know, I mean, Christopher Lambert is definitely trying to play up very cool stepdad kind of vibes, but he's also very much an outsider. He's into pro wrestling, and he's uh, into history, and uh, knows It's real Captain America yeah. vibes. Yeah, but also doesn't quite, I mean, the ways in which he is unable to sw sort of deliver lines in a way that um, are a little awkward. I mean, frankly, I think his awkwardness plays into this idea and his knowledge of history, but but there is this one girl out there. There's this one girl out there in the world who just loves swords, who just loves history, wants to know everything you know about Japanese yeah. culture, and and is turned on when you say, "Oh, 1783, that was a good year," and would sit down and you and listen to you list events of 1783, and she looks impressed. That's nowhere near real life. And on top of that. So you have all of that sort of history and, uh, uh, and you know prowess with the samurais. I mean, think about people who um, were very, very proud of owning fancy samurai swords um, in their teenage years, right? Which are the target audience of this group, right? Oh, um, I'm sorry, Dustin. Am I not still supposed to be proud of that? It's because it came from the war. 
uh, I'm just saying there is a personality type. Um, that, that is a fair point. Okay, there is a personality type, and again, well, again, the ostracized sort of uh, again outsiders and academically speaking. <laughs> so all of that, and then you combine that with the one moment of fantasy heroism, which is he survives the Holocaust and saves some poor Jewish girl from being genocided. Right. So he's kind of woke, too. He's a very, very nice guy. And, we, you know, can, you know, efficiently distribute violence if we would just change the rules of fighting so we didn't fight the way you guys fought. And if we fought in the old school kind of ways, then I would be, you know, awesome and I would, you know, punch Nazis in the face or whatever. It, it does sort of fall into the, the, the realm of the nerd fantasy. Yeah. And uh, if only the girl would be interested in me, then all would be well and I would have the prize. I think that's a very good point, Dustin, yeah. And I think it does kind of speak to, uh, while like, um, the nods to uh, sexual fluidity in this film I think are really cool, uh, it, it does, yeah, center on the, the film's kind of general heteronormativity and its, it's kind of uh, general imperialistic acceptance of violence as a problem-solving problem tool, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, these all feed back into nerd power fantasies or outsider power fantasies. And uh, yeah, those aren't always super useful in our society, and we should always interrogate them. And I do think Highlander has something resembling a healthy view on the consequences of violence um, and a healthy view on how the accumulation of power will leave you lonely. Um, but you're absolutely right that it is not without its missteps and its exploration of these things. Well, I, I think really the the broader point that I would want to make, I'm not really advocating for that reading or ma ma suggesting that reading is what makes the movie interesting. But what I am suggesting is that it's multiplicity of readings, it's overdetermined uh, symbols yeah, are, are part of what makes it interesting. That there are other possibilities beyond just, again, I think the most interesting and maybe most appealing subtext is this queer reading that we offered first. Yeah. But – there are other options, and I just want to throw that out there. Hey, I need to chime in real quick. I was just curious about something. So I was looking up Russell Mulcahy. I don't know how you pronounce it. The director. Oh, from the Resident Evil Extinction. And, and Highlander. Mm -hmm. The director of Highlander. Right. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he lives in West Hollywood with his partner, David Guzman. There huh. you have it, gentlemen. There you fucking have huh. it, gentlemen. Did not know. Thank you. Thank you, director. Well, and we should have known because of how explicitly queer the film is, right? Like, it's not even a little bit gay. It is Openly. hella gay. Yeah, I, it, there you there you have it. It is not in it is it is not in the closet. It is out on out on the streets on Pride Month. Like, it is having a great time. And we're two for um, two. It is loud and proud. LGBTQ uh, directors this month. Uh, yeah, yeah, we, oh, yeah, yeah, baby. Well, you know, it is my birthday month. <laughs> Yeah, there you have it, man. There you have it. Um, uh, and let's go ahead and double down on this. We got to make sure uh, for Pride in 2021, we really fucking uh, blow it out with uh, with a queer cinema marathon. We'll make it happen, Cal. Oh man, Derek German, Derek German for the win, everybody. Oh man, Caravaggio. Okay, well, um, you know I want to get one of those uh, apocalypse trilogy movies on there with uh, Rose McGowan. Roland Emmerich for the win, baby. Yeah, true, true. Now, we've already planned the marathon. Dustin, what else do we need to talk about when it comes to Highlander? Obviously, Arthur's pretty much said his piece. Um, I, well, I was thinking about, uh, again, there's a weird thing in this movie that I do think is a little bit troubling, and that is Anglo-exoticism um, that is going on in the film. The way in which it exoticizes various, uh, again, 
Anglo-centric ethnicities, right? So Ooh, Scottishness, yeah, it, it, Spaniardness, yeah. Egyptian, which is apparently white in the case well, of Well, hold movie. on. And here's what I'll say about what this film does about race and ethnicity and nationality. And that's fetishistic and I don't like it. There are lots of people of varying skin colors in Egypt throughout its history because sure. of its status as a port nation, right? As a trading nation. You have a lot of different people of a lot of different olive complexions traveling throughout the Mediterranean throughout all of human history. And to start trying to say X person from X country should have X skin tone is exactly how you end up with racism and colorism. Mm -hmm. uh, that's exactly where this shit comes from. But I totally agree, Dustin, and especially somebody who's uh, newly re-enjoying their Irish heritage. Uh, it's important to remember that white people who are nerds about being white uh, are racists. They just haven't said it loud yet. Uh, they're trying to wait for you to say something racist before they tell you how racist they are. I guarantee fucking tea it because I've met enough of these people. Um, so you're absolutely right. We do have to interrogate the, yeah, the kind of preoccupation with white ethnicity in this film. Well, that and we, we have to uh, mention the all, entirely off-screen princess Japanese wife of Sean Connery's <laughs> character. Yeah. Again, one of the most Yikes. interesting stories we hear about in the film that totally – yeah, we have a katana uh, at center stage in this film, and we have no Japanese people whatsoever. I do like that uh, Connors – and I forgot the other immortal's name that we meet, but his, his uh, presumably African friend uh, who wears – yeah, who well, who yeah, who wears samurai robes, but they have like a dashiki print. Very cool costume choice. Um, I, I really like it a lot. But you're right that we just damn, we need some Japanese people in this movie, huh? Yeah. And yeah. one less Belgian. <laughs> Should okay. Let's go ahead and talk recasting because I want to talk about uh, form really badly because I want to talk about because I know we have some issues with uh, fight choreography and a couple of other things. I really want to talk about camera work and editing and a lot of the, the, the technical stuff in this film that works really well as an action movie. Um, so do we have anything about race and ethnicity that else that we want to say? Uh, I think we should wrap in class a little bit here too, before we, we, we stop talking about this. Well, I was just going to lastly just talk about the way in which um, there are nods to those fetishized, exoticized uh, versions of whiteness, but they're not yeah. really. I mean, again, we have a Scottish actor playing the Egyptian uh, Spanish Spaniard. character. Yeah. We have a Belgian actor playing the one Scottish character. We have an American actor playing the one Russian character. Uh, we have an English actress playing what would presumably be a French character. Uh, I'm just, you know, yeah, I'm troubled. That's all. Yeah. Well, and again, you're absolutely right, Dustin, that we should problematize it. But per our conversation on the number 23 last week, you can't get too hung up on the minutia of these things because, yeah, this is what the man wants, right? It wants us to be hung up on our racial differences, which are all constructs in the first place. Uh, these are all things that are invented to stop us from thinking about who really accumulates power at the top of the pyramid, um, so to speak. Um, and, and it is interesting speaking of that, like the Kurgan kind of reminds me of the, uh, the season three villain in uh, the book of legend of Korra, right? The avatar sequel series, uh, the Kurgan kind of has like explicitly like, uh, if, if he was a reality TV show, he's the character that's not there to make friends, right? <laughs> he, he, it, it, it represents this very kind of interesting, the accumulation of power as counter revolutionary because he, he dresses in very like you know, punk goth garb uh, in the 80s, but he is all about the accumulation of power. He's a total nihilist in, in some ways. Uh, so it is interesting to, to have that sort of character, that Russian character, 
um, and not have a revolutionary mindset, um, especially in the mid 80s. Um, it, it is interesting, I think. Yeah, for sure. I don't really have anything to say about it other than that. I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't thought any harder about it. I just think it's kind of cool that that's going on in the movie, and I'm sure somebody somewhere smart has written a paper about it. Yeah, I'd like to read that paper. Are there any other big thematic things that we want to discuss with this movie? Uh, no theme. I just want to talk craft briefly, um, if, if we have time. I'm sure. Uh, do, do, does anybody else have a – Arthur, you mentioned the wrestling match. I didn't know the wrestlers at the start of the movie, but it did not surprise me that you did. Yeah, the Fabulous uh, Freebirds, really. Yeah, I grew up with the Fabulous Freebirds, yeah. Okay, right on. Well, I love the wire work stuff, right, which is, of course, I'm sure, rigging that's already there at Madison Square Garden. But that that opening just camera work to establish the interior of Madison Square Garden is so cool. And yeah. I think you know where the fight choreography in this film does struggle, I think excellent camera work and very good uh, editing make up for it. Uh, the editing also follows through to some incredible scene transitions and following. We get a lot of flashbacks of Connor, and it never hurts the plot momentum of the modern day stuff uh, for me, anyway. I agree. And I think that there's, you know, we've got Brenda, the Kurgan, and Connor all going about different stories in the modern day timeline. And I think the film gives all three of those stories. Uh, a lot of mileage because all three of them are in intersecting all the time. So it's able to kind of check in on them at various points and weave in these backstories. So again, there's like really four main plots working throughout the film. And I think the film just manages those. And again, the writing here is not great dialogue wise, but from a story structure standpoint, um, uh, both in the writing and in the editing, I think it's marvelous truly as far as, you know, Canon film goes, it's batting way above Canon's average. Uh, and then again, I just, yeah, I think the camera work, both lighting, um, the, the final, Arthur, you mentioned the big window warehouse, but also the, the neon lit bill, billboard thing above it. Holy crap, what a cool standoff location. Um, yeah, just great location scouting. Connor's apartment is the coolest bachelor pad on the fucking face of the planet. Are you kidding me? Without a couch? That's just a room that's a circular couch with all this cool knickknacks? Yeah. Uh, get out of here. Yeah, all, all the craft stuff in this film just blew my hair back one second after the next. I just was falling in love all over again with this movie. And that's really all I, I have to say about the craft. I don't know if there's anything that stood out to either of you is, like, really noticeable. I mean, that's oh, what we uh, haven't Clancy, already addressed, yeah. yeah. Clancy Brown's sword gymnastics. That's the only thing we didn't talk about. Arthur, you mentioned his committed physical performance, and I totally agree. And to me, the you know, it's, it's almost Tom Hardy-esque in how committed it is, I feel like. Like, it really is that that kind of level of, like, physicality where you go, damn, Clancy Brown worked out and trained for this movie. Uh, because he's got that whole routine in his hotel room where he's doing, like, these tricks uh, where he rolls the arm, the sword across his arms. Yeah, he and he's, does. like, doing, like, mm -hmm. like little rolls and stuff. Yeah, like, he's doing calisthenics with the sword in his hotel room. That's cool. So did he uh, kill Candy? Yeah. Oh, Candy got murdered by the Kurgan. I'm 90% so, sure. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's bad. He's a bad dude Wait. with a capital B, capital D. I, I feel like there's a pretty glaring thing because we see Kurgan with the Scottish wife. I can't think of her name. Heather. Heather. And then the next scene, she's just happy-go-lucky with McLeod. And then later on, um, a sexual assault is revealed, yeah. Yeah, it's weird editing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that is one misstep. I had kind of forgotten about that, that being the flow of events in the film. You're you're right. That is that is a good point. Well, it's definitely um, a mystery to Connor. So I mean, I guess that's why. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can bring this train home into the station uh, if everybody else is satisfied. I think so. Yeah. All right. So show for trash. What do you say, Dalton? Go. Uh, it's pretty obvious. I'm in love with this film. I think it is part of the '80s action movie canon, right up there with again Roadhouse. Uh, Die Hard, Predator, uh, Point Break. It is one of the best action films of the 1980s. You must, must, must. This is watch my last this episode of the Good Trash Genre cast. Uh, to, <laughs> Arthur's, to Arthur's point, it is a lot more fun if you have friends to watch it with. And I know we're still under mass quarantine procedures, so you know, find a way to stream it remotely. I think it's on Amazon Prime, and I feel like yes. they've got a pretty handy like group watch feature uh, built in. I think they've got a function built into the cool. web browser version. Yeah, I think so. I know a couple of streaming services yeah. are starting to beta test that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, mostly because I don't think they, uh, you know, if you're going to steal their service, they want to like steal as many data, people's data as possible while you do it. So, Check out. Um, but anyway, uh, I, yeah, I, I agree with Arthur. This is probably not a fun watch by yourself unless, you know, it's late at night and you're, uh, you're already feeling a little uh, delirious and uh, you need help getting to sleep. I think you'd have fun with this. Uh, but uh, yeah, I love it. Ma massive recommendations. It's going to come up again when we do the Shelby's, guaranteed. All right. Thank you very much for that, Dalton. What do you say, Arthur? Has you been making faces this whole time? I'm not vehemently trashing it like Dalton did last week with number 23, but I am firmly putting it in the trash. Firmly. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not my Hebrew Hammer nominee or anything like that, but it is firmly going in the trash. Fair enough, fair enough. I am actually going to lightly shelf it, I, I because I, I'm just going to confess it, it's nostalgia, and I do love the series, and this is sort of the daddy that started them all, and uh, because of that, I, and, and again, I think it's an interesting entry in the canon, canon? Um, again, I'm still mm, sticking yeah. to this, and uh, that there's something going on there uh, with this uh, small little independent company that keeps producing these um, pretty um, fertile hits. Um, that's interesting uh, to me So as a uh, film scholar. So for my money, I think I would go ahead and hang on to it. Uh, for that, though, your mileage may vary. And again, I mean, there's a lot of it that's pretty wooden and uh, quite frustrating uh, to watch. But I think some of his badness um, does bring a little bit of charm for me as well with those nostalgic goggles. So that's where I come down on that. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on this. Um, Dalton, do you want to make some plugs on the social medias? I most certainly don't, but I will anyway, because that's one of the things you have to do when you have a podcast is you have to do commercials, even if it makes you feel a little bit like a sellout. Uh, dear listener, if you want to engage with the show a little bit more deeply, you can send your long-form feedback to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Are we being too committed to our queer reading of Highlander? Are we being too glib in our reading? Uh, do we uh, not address something in the film that bothers you? Do we not address something in the film that inspires you and uplifts you? Let us know. GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail.com. You can also follow Good Trash Media. That's the podcast network that this podcast technically belongs to. You can follow us on Twitter at Good underscore Trash. Um, if you subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get podcasts, um, although we're not on some platforms, just let, you know, we're on some of them. Just Google first, probably. Uh, but, you know, if you subscribe to us, you also get for free the podcast Twilight with Kirsten Thurkelson and Aaron Demos, where they talk about uh, the Twilight franchise. As they build themselves, they're two grown women talking about a YA franchise that took over the world. Uh, and and I, I think it does for, that that show does a lot for 
conversations around Twilight that I, I hope that this episode did for conversations around uh, Highlander, right? Uh, this kind of in-depth analysis is great for cult hits. Uh, I think it's honestly one of the best places that you can apply this sort of analysis. Finally, um, that, that's how you do the, the social media stuff, listener. Uh, if you want to really get in the weeds with Arthur and Dustin and myself, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash GTM and hear our story about male friendship, sexual tension, revolution and rebellion, gods and monsters, and all sorts of other kick-ass stuff. Good trash archdiocese. Um, we'll get back to doing good trash nights where we talk about what's got us fired up in pop culture again. We'll do that again someday, but we're having too much fun right now playing Good Trash Archdiocese, a Monster of the Week actual play podcast. Um, it's Arthur, how much do the people got to give us to listen to that? I believe it's $3. $3 a month? It's $3 a so. month. It's, it's, I, it's well worth your money. It's better than I, – I, I feel confident in saying it's better than 40% of the things you've ever watched on Netflix. It's a great time. Uh, better not bring your kids. Uh, I will say that. Uh, but otherwise, it's a great time. Um, and that's the social media plugs. Dustin, why don't you tell the fine folks at home what we're doing next week to celebrate your Redeem birthday. Redeem yourself. Uh, yeah, so uh, we, I get to select a martial arts film now based on uh, my dissertation and my scholarship. Um, we are not oh, doing hell yeah. something from the uh, Temple of Bruce Lee, although I would love to do that. I am not selecting now, Dustin, that. Before you make your reveal, do you and I have to have a fist fight before next week's episode to really get it out of our system uh, before we talk about martial arts on air? Oh, we've yes. been needing to have a fist fight for a while now, buddy. Um, oh, that's very true. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to – we got we got a couple of debts on either end we got to settle yeah. up on, I suppose. Yeah, well, I got to throw hands um, for sure. But no, um, Yamu Zhang's hero – from uh, the mid-90s, starring Jet Li. I think Donnie Yen's got an appearance in there. Uh, think uh, Rashomon, but color-coded, and Kung Fu. Actually, Dustin, I think it's from, like, 2004. I think it's later than you think oh, it, it might is. Be. I, I love don't know. that film, and I'm very excited to talk about it, because I haven't seen it in years. Um, yeah, what's your exposure to it? Just, just I've seen it a handful of times. I think it's a film that's got multiple release dates. I think there's an earlier uh, Chinese release than there is an American release by quite a bit. But we'll talk more about that once we get some details put together for it. Um, original released in 2002, uh, U.S. released in 2004. There you go. But uh, so that being said, so uh, Yang Yang. Zhang, Yamu Zhang, Yang Jimu, you see it going both ways, but the uh, Ch uh, Chinese style, I believe, is Yamu Zhang, is uh, how you do the name. But again, Rashomon, but color-coded, and fun. So, that's all I want to say, and Kung Fu, lots and lots of Kung Fu. So, good times to be had by all, I look forward to it, you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you.